morning and welcome to Rising. We have a fantastic show for you today. I'm Amisha Cross, filling in for Robbie Suave. I'm joined remotely by the amazing Facha Ungar Sargon. Facha, good to be with you this morning and love the dress. What do we have planned for today? It's so great to be here with you, Amisha. I'm so excited for today's show. Our Rising panel will get into the details of what some are calling Twitter's Thursday Night Massacre. You will not want to miss that. Plus, Reason Magazine's Liv Wolf, Liz Wolf is back, and she will join us later to discuss new developments in the arrest of FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried. But first, is Elon Musk stepping down as head of Twitter? The embattled chief twit polled users in a tweet last night and pledged to abide by the results, which, as of this morning, lean firmly yes. Apparently unhappy with the poll's outcome, Musk later posted, as the saying goes, be careful what you wish you might get it. This latest development comes after a weekend of high-profile suspensions and reinstatements. While Musk haphazardly implemented updated content moderation policies regarding doxing, as well as linking to Twitter's competitors, we'll get into those changes later. For now, Bacha, what do you think? Have the people spoken and should Musk step down? <laughs> you know, um, Elon Musk did something I thought that was very admirable last night. Um, he apologized for implementing a whole bunch of new policies that um, Twitter immediately walked back, one of which was banning accounts that use Twitter to promote their social media accounts on other um, social media platforms. Um, crazy. Uh, also, he banned a whole bunch of uh, journalists who he accused of doxing his real-time location, although most of them had not done that. And then he banned um, Taylor Lawrence, apparently for having doxed somebody in, on a completely different platform months and months and months ago. So he had a very difficult, challenging weekend in which I think it you know, he was revealed to, to in, in the light of a sort of petty tyrant using Twitter, which he now owns, to wreak vengeance and exact, you know, you know, revenge against journalists who were reporting on him unfavorably. Um, and I, 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 I was really impressed that he apologized. I mean, it's not really the kind of thing you expect because his behavior this whole weekend had been so Trumpian, Trumpian. And um, so I, I, I have to say I was impressed by the apology. I was impressed by the Twitter poll. I like his idea of now taking making big decisions to the people, to the users. I think that's that's a really smart idea. But um, what did you think, Amisha? What was your reaction to the whole weekend? I, it was more exciting, I think, than actually the World Cup because you never <laughs> knew where he was going and it seemed like he was attacking everybody. He jumped into a Twitter spaces to basically defend himself in some radical action and then jumped out of Twitter spaces, then totally deleted Twitter spaces completely so nobody could ever use it again and then brought it back. It was There was a lot going on here. And to your point, you know, I, I think Elon Musk is kind of a petty prince. Um, he has decided that he is going to do exactly what he said that he wouldn't or that he was against. This is a guy who talked about being a First Amendment absolutionist. Um, he believed so heartedly that people should be able to speak their minds in this free public, you know, public space or public square and not really have repercussions. Meanwhile, it seems like he only believes that if those people actually agree with him and are not being critical of him or his actions. This is also a guy who I think um, I don't want to give too much credit to in terms of his apology, because the reason it came about is 
Tesla, quite frankly. He is watching shareholders have a real problem with the actions that he is exhibiting on Twitter. He is watching monetarily this go down the tubes. He is acknowledging that Twitter, quite frankly, may go bankrupt sooner rather than later. And he is also, you know, he said weeks ago that he was thinking about having appointing a CEO that wasn't him, which should have been done a while ago, considering how bad this has, this has taken off. But I think that the whole we're going to let the public kind of vote on this, it's a little bit after the fact at this point, because to your, to your point earlier, saying that you don't want to have or creating a rule where people on Twitter can't promote any of their activities or appearances or anything that they do um, on YouTube or on Facebook or on Instagram. He left out TikTok, which is a very important thing here. <laughs> uh, we know of his cozy relationship with China, so TikTok was not a part of that conversation. But he also was only going to create a policy, not necessarily to ban everyone from making those connections or from um, putting them on Twitter, but to financially gain money because of it. So the other part of that was that he was going to no longer allow them to do it for free. Remember, he is still trying to monetize as much as he can off of Twitter, meanwhile tanking it with every tweet. Cannot agree more about the China point. Um, I think it's a really important one that doesn't get brought up enough. It, it seems to me like um, Musk is sort of has three competing sets of needs when it comes to owning Twitter. Like you said, he has to turn a profit. He sunk billions of his own money into this. Uh, he's lost billions and billions of dollars in the last six months over this. Uh, he has to, he, he, from his point of view, I think it is imperative that Twitter become a profitable business. He also, I think, believes in his heart of hearts that free speech is important and, you know, that there should be more free speech on Twitter's platform. And I think that he, like many of us, even those of us not on the right, was pretty horrified by how intense the censorship of conservatives has been. And then there's the sort of the third prong of this, which is, you know, his need to be the center of attention and to be a sort of petty drama queen at all moments and his love of taking on the media and being, you know, in the headlines in this sort of very Trumpy way. So, and, and those of course all come in tension with each other, right? The free speech absolutism would demand that you allow somebody to be on the platform tweeting swastikas. Of course, turning a profit is very much in tension with that because big advertisers do not want their products advertised next to swastikas, right? There's a real tension there. And of course, like exactly as you pointed out, that tension between being a drama queen, living for that rush, you get the serotonin rush of like being at the center of every, you know, the thing, the trending topic on Twitter, that gets very much in the way of turning a profit, not just on Twitter, but exactly like you said, Tesla, SpaceX, he has a lot of other business interests. So I think that competing, those three competing sets of needs, you know, navigating that has been very challenging for him, um, you know, as it would be for anybody. Um, and and so I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to sort of explain, understand this to the best of my ability and extend him the most credit as somebody who's been very critical. I, I think that the way that he took on um, Barry Weiss, for example, was so telling. Um, you know, he had, so Barry Weiss was one of um, two journalists, Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi, who was given extensive access access to Twitter in order to expose these Twitter files, which some of which we, you know, sort of confirming what we knew. There was a lot of new information there, how much Twitter capitulated to the FBI's requests for censorship and information. You know, a lot of interesting stuff came out there. Um, you know, but Barry Weiss very bravely, I think, um, came out against the suspensions of these journalists. And Musk did not take kindly to the fact that this journalist who he had, you know, it, you know, it, invited into his home then took a stand against censorship. And, 
you know, he sort of, you know, accused her um, of, of trying to curry favor with the left, which, you know, she's the last person who would do that. And then he promptly unfollowed her. Again, very Trumpy behavior in terms of not the kind of thing you would expect from someone who billed himself as the avatar of free speech in America. No, you're absolutely right. For someone who um, is seemingly following the playbook of former President Trump, who called the press enemies of the people, we're now seeing that same type of behavior from, uh, from Elon Musk. And it's quite frankly saddening. Yeah, I will just say um, one more thing, which is that he had, you know, his behavior, we could judge that. The thing he's exposed, the hypocrisy he's exposed on, you know, among leftist journalists, I think that was a real public service. So, you know, these people who had themselves been the ones demanding um, that people be deplatformed, that people have their accounts suspended, often successfully demanding that of the previous Twitter regime, these leftist journalists were now in the position of demanding free speech, demanding that they be allowed to have their say. You know, and, and, and conversely, on the right, the people who had been decrying the censorship of Twitter um, under the old regime were here cheering Musk on for, for, for deleting the account, for suspending the accounts of their perceived enemies. And so he really, I mean, it just exposed the total hypocrisy on both sides that people really will use a principle like the First Amendment, which is most important when it comes to your enemies, right? It is most important to protect the speech of your enemies, how each side will use that only to protect their own. And I, I think that that, in a way, was a public service, exposing that hypocrisy by the corporate media, because so many people experience that on a daily basis. And, and I can understand the schadenfreude that a lot of people on the right felt at seeing these, these people get banned. Although the real people to follow are the people who were saying, you know, look, I get the schadenfreude, but this is still wrong. You're right, Bacha. And everybody wants an account suspended until it's theirs. Um, yes. <laughs> looking forward to your radar coming up next. What's on your radar? Well, if you thought 2 million people illegally crossing our southern border in just one year was bad, things are about to get a lot worse. On Wednesday, a Trump-era policy aimed at curbing illegal immigration is set to expire. The policy, called Title 42, was part of a U.S. public health code and allowed Border Patrol agents to immediately turn people back to Mexico due to the threat posed by the pandemic. Under Title 42, the U.S. expelled upwards of 2 million illegal immigrants, meaning that had it not been in place, we would have had well over 4 million illegal migrants enter the country over the last two years. Just take a look at this footage from Fox News' Bill Malugan of a night in El Paso, Texas last week. Now, Democrats who oppose Title 42 have ironically decided that we are no longer in a pandemic. Unless, of course, you're a lawyer with student loans, in which case uh, the pandemic era moratorium on your loans has been extended until June of 2023. The truth is we aren't in a pandemic anymore. But given the Biden administration's lax attitude toward the southern border, Title 42 has been effectively the only means of border control currently in operation. And that policy is now set to lapse. 
after an appeals court denied a GOP effort to keep it in place. Border Patrol agents, border towns, and southern states are bracing for the huge influx of migrants in already taxed systems. El Paso has declared a state of emergency, but they aren't the only ones. Governors of southern states have taken to busing migrants to sanctuary cities, liberal bastions that like to brag about their openness to immigrants. And those cities' authorities have been less than pleased about being asked to put their money where their mouths are. New York City Mayor Eric Adams, for example, released a panicked statement on Sunday about the influx of 1,000 migrants a day that he is expecting to arrive in New York once Title 42 expires. Quote, our shelter system is full and we are nearly out of money, staff and space, Mayor Adams said in his statement. Truth be told, if corrective measures are not taken soon, says Adams, we may very well be forced to cut or curtail curtail programs New Yorkers rely on, and the pathway to house thousands more is uncertain. These are not choices we want to make, but they may become necessary, says Adams, and I refuse to be forced to choose new arrivals over current New Yorkers. Unfortunately, that choice has already been made and not in favor of New Yorkers. The Independent Budget Office projected that the city will spend $600 million a year to provide shelter, education, health care, and legal aid to the asylum seekers who have already made their way to New York. Meanwhile, New York City's public housing residents have a backlog of repairs to the tune of billions of dollars, as Daniel Barber, who represents New York City Housing Authority's 339,000 tenants, aptly put it in an interview with the New York Post. The city is going to put forth a ton of money for these people who aren't even citizens, but they forgot about the people who live in public housing right here, says Barber. How is it fair to them to spend their hard-earned taxpayer dollars on illegal immigrants? How is it fair to the working-class Americans struggling to get by? How is it fair to the 40,000 homeless veterans across the nation? How is it fair to legal immigrants or those patiently applying for asylum who can't access our southern border? How is it fair to the families of people dying of fentanyl overdoses from drugs brought in by cartels who have become experts at trafficking humans to distract from their drug trafficking. It's not just in New York. The choice to prioritize economic migrants over American citizens has been made over and over by the Biden administration. In removing every one of Trump's immigration policies, Biden has signaled to eager migrants that the door is open and they will be welcomed with open arms if they cross illegally into the US. And it is Americans, American taxpayers, Americans in need of services, American children who rely on public schools and American workers who rely on American health care who have been asked to pay for the pieties of this administration without getting a say in it. Immigration advocates argue that Title 42 unfairly denied migrants the opportunity to seek asylum. But the reporting has found repeatedly that the majority of the migrants illegally crossing the border are economic migrants and their families who don't have a legitimate asylum claim. In fact, it's something Nancy Pelosi herself admitted in her infamous comments about how we need these illegal migrants to, quote, pick crops. Ironically, after calling Trump's border policies cruel and inhumane, President Biden now seems poised to start copying Trump. Two proposals in particular seem to be coming straight out of the Trump playbook on immigration, Axios reports. The Biden administration is considering imposing a version of Trump's remain in Mexico policy, which would bar single adults who cross illegally who have not first applied for asylum in countries they cross through to enter the U.S. And the administration is considering ramping up criminal prosecutions for illegal border crossing. 
Recall that then-candidate Biden raised his hand when asked during a Democratic primary debate whether he would decriminalize illegal border crossing. The administration is also considering raising the cap on a recently successful program, which sends up to 24,000 Venezuelans specifically back to Mexico if they attempt to cross illegally. The program radically reduced the number of Venezuelans attempting to cross, though increasing the cap will rely on Mexico's uh, cooperation. It's not just ironic that President Biden won an election in part by parading his virtue on immigration and portraying his opponent as unbelievably cruel, only to now embrace his opponent's tactics in the face of a crisis of Biden's own making. Democrats cast Trump's base, too, as cruel and hateful bigots for thinking that this country should have a secure border. They called them racists for thinking American citizens should come first. They called them white people obsessed with losing status to, quote, people of color for wanting a secure border. Leftist journalists and academics and politicians went to great lengths to smear their fellow Americans as hateful, only to have it made clear what their privilege had protected them from having to acknowledge. After all, it is not morality, but privilege that protects you from having to worry about an immigrant taking your job. It's not virtue, but economic security that grants you the ability to put signs in your window saying, immigrants are welcome here. Though, of course, we saw how far those signs got the migrants flown to Martha's Vineyard. You're not a better person than the working class Americans who vote on immigration. You're just richer. But it seems that now even some on the left are finding their voices and able to admit the truth. The southern border is a mess. You can't have a country without a border. It's not cruel to believe this. It is unbelievably cruel not to. Your fellow Americans who are struggling shouldn't have to pay for your pieties. Why don't you learn to spare a kind word for them from your position of immense privilege? So Amisha, where are you on this question of Title 42? Title 42 should never have been in existence. Quite frankly, it was something that came about during the Trump administration, largely due to his anti-immigrant sentiment. It never really had a full backing in, in, in health or healthcare prevention of things like the spreading of COVID. Uh, because we know, just like with um, the stopping of entrants being able to come to the United States at that time, um, it did not stop us from having COVID already here in this country. Uh, there is no significant amount of COVID that was spread from immigrants coming in. We already know that. Again, as somebody who traveled multiple times during the pandemic to foreign countries and absolutely didn't have COVID, took tests before I went, took the test when I went, the three times I got COVID were two in New York and one in the state of Florida. So I think that we have to understand in context here that it was a, a piece of policy, again, not in immigration. This is a very separate form of policy. It's not immigration reform policy. It's not immigrant policy at all. It's not codified in that way. Um, it was a piece of policy that I think was ill-informed at the time and something that quite frankly put a, put a target on the backs of individuals who were trying to escape some of the most demonstratively horrible, in many cases running from death. You are right in your um, in your assessment, also economic despair and trying to get some level of some level of help, some level of a reprieve. This is something that I think should have been gone a long time ago, something that the Biden administration should have taken on as um, as he was coming into office, not something that we're still discussing right now, quite frankly, because it was poorly it was poorly designed to begin with. And there wasn't any there wasn't any methodology that would have made it make sense. We know that immigration reform activists, we know that many, uh, including Congress members themselves, were at least on the Democratic side, were against it from its inception. And I think that largely it's because there was no through line between immigrants entering the United States and there being um, this large or sizable form of COVID that was passed between them. It just wasn't factual. And the basis of that was largely anti-immigrant sentiment from the Trump administration. 
Well, I so I, I don't agree about the anti-immigrant sentiment, but I agree with you that it does seem like this was just a sort of convenient way to do something that I think was very necessary, which is stem the flow, you know, this huge flow, this rising flow of illegal immigrants at the southern border. But I completely agree with you that the rationale never seemed um, very strong. Certainly now, I mean, you're right. Like, the, the, it's like either the pandemic's over or it's not. And it does, we do seem to believe that it is over. But I think the point is that right now, um, what Border Patrol agents have been saying and what, you know, governors of southern states, border states, um, what they've been saying is that this is really the only means they have of turning people away. Um, and so once this is gone, preparing for, I mean, you know, Mayor Adams saying he's expecting a thousand migrants a day to New York City. I mean, that's a that's a lot of people. <laughs> well, largely this is because of lackluster congressional efforts. This isn't an issue totally. that is the immigration reform yeah. isn't something that just came about during the Biden administration or the necessity to quell some of the southern border entrants isn't something that came about during the Trump administration. We've been battling this for longer than you and I have been alive. And I think that at the end of the day, there has to be a there has to be an effort on both sides of the aisle in not only addressing the issue, but also the the impetus of these undocumented immigrants coming to America to begin with. We know that Vice President Kamala Harris went to the um, to the Triangle countries just a few months ago. Um, by all intents and purposes, with the exception of American media, it seems like those conversations went well. But this is a humanitarian crisis for several people, um, and they are trying their best to salvage their children, save their children, which I think any parent would want to do if you cannot feed them if they are running from violence, if they have state-sanctioned violence against said families. And our asylum system, quite frankly, has been broken for quite some time. And the, and the former administration, the Trump administration, made it a whole lot harder of a process for many individuals. And they think that we have to revisit that, some of the changes that were made during that administration, but also acknowledge that there are humanitarian efforts and humanitarian relief and a process that we have to go through to ensure that we won't have that influx. Yes, border security matters, but it doesn't take into account the many causes that continue to push people to our to our southern border. I, I mean, definitely, definitely. Although I think that it's not it's been cast as racist to say, but my people first, like, for example, I'm a New Yorker. I want that money to go to public housing. I care a lot about that issue. I think it's really important. The, the, the state of those apartments is horrific. None of us would agree to live in such conditions. It's horrible. But can we and not do it? both, Bacha? And I say that well, because I mean, the housing situation and, and the crisis of housing in New York is not anything new. The, crising, the, the crisis of homeless populations in L.A. or in New York or in my hometown of Chicago. Chicago and the state of Illinois is also a sanctuary state and a sanctuary city. And we don't have Mayor Lightfoot or, or, or Governor Pritzker saying the types of things that I'm hearing come out of Mayor, Mayor Adams' mouth in New York, and partially because of his approval ratings and other things that are kind of shifty-shaky for his administration, he is making some claims that we're not hearing from other leaders of um, sanctuary cities or sanctuary states. But I also think that when we take this into context, again, context matters. Our veterans' issues, veterans' homelessness, I sit on veterans' boards. I make sure that I'm elevating this issue every single day. Us taking care of our immigrant population or talking about immigration reform in the southern border does not annihilate the need for us to have veteran supports for those who serve valiantly and come back to our country and get nothing. I think that we can do both of these things. And immigration reform efforts have, have been, you know, decades long. Veterans have been coming back to America and getting absolutely nothing and living on the streets for generations. I think that these are things that we can tackle and need to tackle, but it's not an if 
or. It is an if and. There is an and here. We don't have to separate them. It is Congress's job, it is America's job to not only take care of our population, the mental health issues that are associated with homelessness, the, um, the addiction issues that are that are a part of the homeless population as well, but also the rising cost of housing. All of these things are domestic issues that we need to take care of. And I think that that is very separate from a conversation about immigration reform. Well, we are going to have to leave it at that. But what fun discussing this with you, Amisha. And uh, we are going to have more rising right after this. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has completely flip-flopped on the issue of COVID-19 vaccines. He not only supported former President Trump's vaccine rollout called Operation Warp Speed, but he welcomed pandemic resources with open arms to the tune of $480 million and showered Trump with praises for his vaccine delivery efforts throughout 2020 and 2021. But in recent weeks, some are saying he's done a reversal, starting with his announcement last week of a statewide investigation into alleged wrongdoing related to the COVID vaccines. DeSantis, who is very likely to be a 2024 GOP president primary contender, could be trying to set himself apart from Trump should he make a run. Here to discuss whether DeSantis is flip-flopping is Jeff Charles, the host of a Fresh Perspective podcast and a Newsweek opinion contributor. Welcome back, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. So is this a flip-flop? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think he's gone fully anti-vax. I mean, but it sounds like he's changed his mind. I mean, a lot of people have changed their minds on the vaccination because we were kind of sold a bill of goods when it first came out and then realized that it was less effective than it was advertised. But I don't see him necessarily saying, no, don't take the vax or anything like that. But at the same time, it could be politically motivated. I mean, one thing that I've always said is that if he does run, Trump's biggest vulnerability with the base is his... Um, salesmanship when it comes to the vaccine. So it could be both or it could be just political. I actually think that you're right here, Jeff. There is a large political understanding. I think that the Florida governor isn't often given credit for. He knows the environment. He knows that it's right for newness that is not Donald Trump. He also knows that there are several conservatives, particularly in places like Florida, who are anti-vax, who, quite frankly, were excited by this emergence of sub-variants that kind of lessened the effect of the vaccine. So now they're saying, okay, of all the people who went out and got um, the, the COVID vaccine and got multiple boosters, guess what? COVID's not gone. You're still getting COVID and we're proven right, which scientifically that's not how it works. But I do think that there is a there is an audience for this type of rhetoric. What do you see as the back the, the backdrop here? We know that COVID-19 is going up, particularly around the holidays. Um, what, what do you see as is this going to be problematic or do you think that this is bolstering him for a potential 2024 run and he's going to look back at these comments and possibly have a highlighting moment? It's possible. I mean, if you look at the, the numbers, most Republicans uh, have taken at least one or two vote, uh, doses of the vaccine. So it's not like the base is really that much adamantly against the vaccine. But it, it, it is a risky move. But at the same time, he might be trying to take people from Trump's base who are, who are already vaccine hesitant. It might end up being a brilliant move. I mean, cause like I said, that is Trump's biggest vulnerability with, with the base. And you have a lot of people, especially over the past, you know, past few months, who are switching from Trump to DeSantis. Even people who like Trump, they're ready to move on. And I think DeSantis is seeing that it's time to strike while the iron is hot. And this is one of the issues to do it with. Now, he's going to need more than this if he's going to beat out Trump 
for the nomination, but I see this as him laying the groundwork. This is, this is probably the beginning. You know, I think that there was a position on the right that was consistently pro-vax but anti-mandate that um, it was very much in the Democrats' uh, interest to act like anybody who was anti-mandate was also anti-vax. And I could see DeSantis justifying this switch on those grounds. But isn't there a sort of almost like a tragic Shakespearean quality to this? Because, I mean, how many lives did Trump save with Operation Warp Speed only to now be punished for it electorally by people who are alive because of him, no? Isn't there something like deeply, deeply, um, there's so much pathos to that, don't you agree? Yeah, what, uh, what's very interesting about this, Bachi, is that there isn't that much daylight between DeSantis and Trump on vaccines. Trump was never for vaccine mandates, and he made that very clear. He still got booed when he talked about how he got the booster shot. Uh, DeSantis, same thing, I mean, he was very, he, he was praising the vaccines, when they first rolled out, and now he's kind of changed his tune, but he still hasn't gone to the point where he's telling people not to get the vaccine. So it's not really much of a distinction here between how they feel. I mean, they say the same thing. Consult your doctor, you know, make your own health care decisions. This should not be mandated. But I think that Ron DeSantis is going to take advantage of the fact that Trump was uh, more gung-ho about the vaccine than people would have liked him to be. Jeff, there are few people more par more popular in their states when it comes to governors than Ron, DeSant Ron DeSantis happens to be. So when I'm looking at something like this, in, in correlation with what both you and Bacha just said, I, I do think that there is possibly going to be an uptick for Ron DeSantis. He is playing his cards and playing them out well. It's a long road to 2024, and we know that any given day something could happen and this whole thing could change. But we're also looking at a former president in, in Donald Trump who just issued some version of virtual playing cards. Um, it looks like Ron DeSantis is essentially the adult in the room, even if people don't necessarily always agree with what what he's saying, particularly around this um, the, the, the vaccine and being anti seemingly not as pro-vaccine as he used to be. What is your take on it? Yeah, well, the polling among Republicans before Trump announced still had Trump beating DeSantis. But that gap has closed, and now that he's announced, DeSantis is pulling ahead in most of the polls that are coming out. And Trump isn't doing himself any favors uh, by, you know, having dinner with Kanye West and accidentally having dinner with, with Nick Fuentes and then coming out with NFTs after saying that there's going to be a huge announcement. I think that made him, I mean, he really made himself look silly. I don't know if he's listening to bad advice or if he's just going on his gut, but DeSantis is smart to take advantage of it. And I do believe that these numbers will continue. Unless DeSantis does something incredibly stupid, I think his star is going to continue to rise. It doesn't guarantee that he'll win the nomination, but at this point, it's not a foregone conclusion like it was earlier this year when the favorite was clearly uh, former President Trump. You know, Jeff, when I look at um, who, what, what President Trump's base voted on, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they were the sort of the main issues for them were things like immigration, foreign wars, a lot of stuff, you know, around, you know, class issues, the class divide. Um, I'm wondering when you look at DeSantis, um, you know, do you see him being able to pick up on that populist energy around issues like um, foreign wars, around issues like trade? I mean, Trump was 
so protectionist when it came to the economy. Um, it's very hard to tell where DeSantis is on um, economics and 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 uh, international relations, foreign policy, because he doesn't have a lot of. There's not a lot of room in the governor's role for 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 making big statements along those lines. But what is your sense of from watching him? Um, is he going to be able to tell the base? that he has their back on those issues as well. Is that something that you see coming or is he going to sort of trend back to the to that sort of free market um, uh, Mitch McConnell era uh, Reaganite GOP? Yeah, it remains to be seen, but yeah, I mean, he I mean, DeSantis knows how to play the game. He's a very good and savvy politician. But you're right. There are a lot of unknowns about DeSantis. That isn't the case with Trump. We know where Trump stands on foreign policy, on trade and all these other issues. But DeSantis has never really had to speak to it. So he's going to have to figure out the messaging that he that he needs to use. If he goes in full neocon, then guess what? Trump's going to be the, the, nom- <laughs> the nominee because <laughs> the base doesn't want that. Nobody wants that on the right. Um, and, you know, there are indications of, of votes that he has made in the past when he was in Congress that he may lean towards that direction. Uh, critics of DeSantis are using his supposed ties to the establishment. You know, the f- people who funded Trump are now trying to fund DeSantis. And they're using that to paint him as more of an establishment figure. But really, it's going to be up to DeSantis whether or not those things stick. It's going to depend on what he says when he gets on the campaign trail. I, I actually expect him to adopt more of Trump's more interventionist policies, less, you know, less intervention, um, maybe even on trade. I don't know what he'll do on trade, but I do expect him to mimic more of what Trump was doing, but to cast himself as a more upgraded version of Trump which is how people see him anyway. So that would be the smart thing to do. Yeah, I think that he's, to your point, Jeff, I think he's going to take the if it ain't broke, don't fix it model. But we also have to remember that this is a guy who had been in in Congress, so we do have kind of a record of his political leadership, which we did not have when Trump first ran. This is also somebody who, and we haven't seen a lot of this in the modern era, but somebody who actually served in the military. Um, I I think that there is a lot of there there when it comes to fully understanding what he's doing. But because... To Bacha's point, he is in the governorship. He's not going to or hasn't had the opportunity to outwardly discuss those, which he is going to have to, as it, should he assume this role and should he, as I think we all expect, be a real contender in 2024. Yeah, he is going to have to. And, you know, I expect him to do it well. I mean, he is good at what he does. And that is a big danger to Trump. And if he can effectively portray himself as, hey, this is what you got with the last guy you're going to get with me, but without all the drama. Honestly, that's what the base wants. I mean, they want the same policies. They want the same uh, pugilistic attitude towards the media. DeSantis has that in spades. He, he doesn't have the level of charisma that Trump has, but I think they want a more polished candidate who will still pursue the agenda without getting into tw- uh, a silly Twitter feud and having to, you know, have to deal with, with all the stuff that he says. So I, I think that DeSantis has a real opportunity here where previously I didn't think he had much of one. And Jeff, what's your take on the um, the way the media is sort of, I mean, a lot of us saw this coming, but, you know, when Trump was in office, their major complaint against him, the way they portrayed it was, you know, he's a, a norm breaker, a rule breaker, right? Like he's, he's, it was about his character, right? About his, you know, the gross way that he talked, undignified things he said, right? Um, you know, and, and they said, look, we just give us a normal, it's not that we don't want Republicans to exist, just give us a normal one, right? Okay, now you've got someone like DeSantis, right? Who's, you know, he, he doesn't come out and say, you know, casually racist things. He doesn't tweet all day. He's but but now they're saying, oh, DeSantis is even worse than Trump, right? He's an effective Trump. What's your take on 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 how the media is treating him and what we can expect looking forward? 
You know, I think the media still views Trump as the boogeyman, which I don't think is smart. I mean, there have been a few op-eds that I've seen talking about how uh, Governor DeSantis is more dangerous to them than Trump is. But I don't think the rest have woken up to that yet. I, mm-hmm. I, I still think that they're sleeping on DeSantis. They're doing so less so now, especially with the polling. And some things suggest that they would rather have him running against them. I think DeSantis would be the harder candidate to beat. But if, if it takes the Democrats too long to realize that, he might just flip into the White House. I mean, I, I think that that's what I think that's what's going to happen. I mean, you fast forward to 2024. It's hard to have that crystal ball to know what's going to happen. But if people are still dissatisfied with the way Biden has run things and with the way Democrats have performed in Congress, DeSantis has a really good chance to say, hey, maybe I can be the uniter that Biden said he would be. You know, mm-hmm. here's what I'm going to do for the American people. And again, you're not going to have to worry about a bunch of drama. I think people are just tired of drama. And Jeff, we can probably talk to you about this forever, but that is all the time we have. Looking forward to having you back in the near future. More Rising after this. Twitter CEO Elon Musk found himself in hot water over the weekend after he suspended and then reinstated the accounts of journalists who reportedly shared information about the location of his private plane. Those journalists included CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan, The New York Times' Ryan Mack and Keith Olbermann. Musk defended the suspensions on Twitter spaces and on his timelines over the weekend, writing, quote, if anyone posted real-time locations and addresses of New York Times reporters, the FBI would be investigating. There'd be hearings on Capitol Hill, and Biden would give speeches about the end of democracy. Twitter files journalist Barry Weiss responded to the weekend mayhem, writing, quote, the old regime at Twitter governed by its own whims and biases, and it sure looks like the new regime has the same problem. I oppose it in both cases. The accounts of journalists Musk suspended have since been reinstated. Joining us now to weigh in is Ellis Hennigan, a writer and journalist. Welcome, Ellis. Yeah, good to see you guys. So what was your initial response to all of this uh, Twitter drama over the weekend? (laughs) <laughs> he is no salvation, I will tell you that. Uh, you know, I almost feel bad for some of my friends who were just, just looking at Elon Musk and thinking, oh, my God, finally, finally, we're going to get a Twitter we can love. The guy in, a, in just a, a couple of weeks has uh, taken an imperfect place and uh, sent a wrecking ball through it. Uh, I, I think the only good news may be that his own poll of uh, – Twitter users asking whether he should step down as CEO by a a margin of of something like 15 percent say, get out of there, Elon. (laughs) You're absolutely right. And it's 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 been hilariously saddening to watch as somebody who really loves Twitter. Watch it basically tank in a matter of weeks. Um, But I wanted to get back to something a little bit. We talk about doxing, um, especially in the case of Elon Musk. It was the first thing that he claimed Um, the location of the plane was actually public information. You could follow it on a site. What do you, what are, what say you about the legitimacy of the doxing claims and how this has basically shaken down? Was this a matter of personal security? Uh, do you think that he actually had a legitimate case claim here as he stated on social media? Well, listen, I don't want to come out in favor of doxing. I, I mean, there are examples where that can be abusive or, or threatening to people. But, I mean, we are talking about public information. You guys are both too young to remember, but they used to publish this big, fat book. 
and they were delivered to your doorstep, and it had every single person's <laughs> name and address in it, and their phone number if you wanted to call them in the middle of the night. So, so, so listen, I'm a journalist. I, I'm not going to be in favor of hiding public information. Oh, and, and by the way, I don't think this really had anything to do with why Elon Musk wanted to suspend all those journalists. He, he didn't like what they were saying or writing about it. Right. So, the, OK, I'm just going to play the devil's advocate here. Um, you, what, what people on the right were saying to justify their cheering Musk on for um, um, for, for suspending these journalists were two things. Um, the first was that these were the very people um, who consistently called for the deplatforming of conservatives. And so there was this sort of like, you know, joyous schadenfreude at seeing them have to t get a taste of what like your average normie user gets, right, to have their journalist privilege suspended. Um, I think that, I mean, I'm curious what you think about that. To me, that that argument has, you know, in terms of enjoying it, I totally see why people enjoy it. Um, but the mm -hmm. second thing they would say is this, um, and I'm curious what you think about this, because, um, you know, I spend much of the weekend debating this uh, in my household and on Twitter. Um, you know, they, they argued that the information may have been public, but to get that public information to translate into where the plane was, Jack Sweeney, who was the founder of Elon Jet, had to do quite a lot of work on his own. He had to write these algorithms and create bots mm -hmm. that could decode information that was meant to be sort of much more private. And so, you know, from one point of view, I think it's clearly in the public interest to know where the richest man on, on earth is, especially somebody who's involved in environmental causes, where his private jet is, how much fuel it's burning, right? That seems to me very clearly in the public interest. On the other hand, you know, why is that not doxing if you are giving um, real-time information about somebody's location that, you know, yes, the information is public, but to make it um, accessible to the average person takes a lot of work that this kid was putting in. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I, I mean, we all know that as reporters, right? To, to get public information from the point of view, you know, you got to file a FOIA request, you got to go dig through records, you got to you got to work hard. Sometimes you even have to read a, read a Wikipedia page, which can be very difficult, as you know. Um, but 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 I don't think that's that's really the the, the fundamental issue. Uh, you know, listen, there are a lot of good and bad things about being a big public figure or being the richest or, or now maybe the 10th richest man in America. People focus on you. They say stuff about you. They follow around, follow you around. They, they yell at you. You know, I, to me, uh, while doxing sounds like a really threatening thing, um, I, you know, maybe it's like movie stars complaining about publicity. Hey, maybe it just comes with the turf. <laughs> I think I agree with you on that. Um, my my follow-up would be: We know that the and there's evidence to showcase that the Trump era era was threatening to journalists, quite frankly, um, up mm -hmm. to and including acts of or promoting acts of violence. When it comes to the Elon Musk issues on Twitter, and there are many, do you feel as though those are also threats to journalists? And what does this mean in terms of a new world well, order for those who are reporting the news? Well, I hate whining journalists. I mean, they're almost as bad as whining politicians or whining rich guys. I, you know, I mean, no, nobody should sympathize with us. I mean, we have privileged lives. You know, if it, if it's hard for me to do my job, that's you know, frankly, that's it's kind of my problem. Um, I, honestly, I think the laws as we have them probably work pretty well, which is that you can say nasty stuff about people, you can protest them, you can follow them around, you can yell at them on the sidewalk if you want. 
But if your behavior goes into violence or threats, you, you ought to get arrested. And to, to, to me, it's not a perfect system. I mean, sometimes it does create places where bad stuff happens to people that we feel sympathetic to, including ourselves. But uh, I don't really know a better system than that. You know, something else that came up over the weekend was Jack Sweeney, the the, the college kid who started this Elon Jet mm-hmm. um, account. He went on CNN and um, the host asked him, well, what would it take for you to stop? Because, of course, he can't do Elon Jet on Twitter anymore, but he's now moved it to other platforms. Well, what would right. it take? The host asked him, what would it take for you to stop? And he said, my ask has always been the same. Elon Musk offered me $5,000 to stop. And I said to him, I will take $50,000 or a Tesla to stop doing Elon Jet. And um, a lot of conservatives were calling that extortion. They were saying, look, you know, he has an ability to expose something Elon Musk doesn't want exposed, and he has named a price in order to stop doing that. Um, isn't there something unseemly about that, Ellis? Yeah, it's a really stupid answer, right? I mean, <laughs> it, undermines, it undermines the high-minded philosophical case he was doing such a great job making, right? Um, I would advise him not to give that answer next time. Um, hmm, listen, there's always been, if, if we want to be really honest about it, there's always been a bit of a thin line between journalism and stalking, right? I mean, it's some of what we do, right? We, 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 we follow people around who don't want us to, and that can be uncomfortable for those people. But, but, but again, you, you got to come up with some kind of line, some kind of law. And I really think the one we've lived with for a couple of centuries may be the best one, though admittedly imperfect, which is uh, we let people be obnoxious. We stop them just this side of being threatening or violent. Ellis, you are the best. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> I'm also not smart enough to do that, that kind of electronic doxing, so I, I guess we can have opinions <laughs> about it, right? Good to see you guys. Thanks for having me. Embattled crypto CEO Sam Bankman-Fried may be ready to finally face the music following his indictment and arrest for causing the downfall of cryptocurrency exchange FTX. According to a Washington Post report, an employee at the Fox Hill prison, the Bahamas' only prison where SBF is being held, the young executive is in, quote, good spirits. SBF's attorneys have tried bailing him out to no avail, and questions now remain. Will he stop fighting extradition and come back to the U.S. to face charges? Here to discuss is associate editor at Reason, Liz Wolf. Welcome, Liz. Thanks for having me. Liz, this case couldn't get any crazier. Um, you know, we talked about in a previous segment the the doxing allegations that Elon Musk had. In this case, we could literally track this guy's flight as well while he was trying to run away from his own criminality. Um, can you break it down for us? What do you think is going to happen now? How do we get here? I mean, nobody really knows, right? Of course he's scared, though. He's being brought up on uh, eight possible charges. Uh, If he's convicted of all counts, he'd be spending uh, upwards of 115 years in prison. People are calling this one of the greatest uh, frauds, financial frauds in American history. Uh, He absolutely has no career after this. There's no comeback. Uh, And I think one of the really sad things is that he was one of the people who is very much spearheading this effective altruism movement and one of the people calling for regulation of the cryptocurrency industry. Uh, now both of those uh, legacies are, are very much tarnished or, or the effective altruism legacy is, is tarnished by what happened to him. And now I think uh, the, the landscape of crypto regulation will be fascinating to watch. Uh, Bankman-Fried has very much left his mark, but not in a good way. 
So you're right. So that's my, I guess my first question to you would be like, you still seem to think that, um, you know, cryptocurrency is still good and that effective altruism is still good. Why shouldn't we see in Sam Bankman-Fried's downfall the evidence that both of those things were were just too easy to be co-opted by private interests and scams? I mean, I think so many things can be co-opted by terrible people serving, uh, you know, evil ends. Uh, fraudsters and, and hoaxers and grifters happen uh, in, of all political stripes in all types of movements and all types of industries. And so that's why it's really important to hold them accountable to the fullest extent that we can when we do uncover them, as well as being discerning and skeptical of where we put our money. There's no such thing as a get-rich-quick scheme. Whenever you're seeing huge returns, you should also be uh, aware of the fact that you're shouldering a huge amount of risk. Uh, and it's not as if some of those financial fundamentals have changed. I think that in terms of cryptocurrency uh, regulation, though, one of the things we always see after uh, these scammers are uncovered, whether it's Sam Bankman-Fried or Do Kwon back in May, is that the, the really serious people within the cryptocurrency industry, the Brian Armstrongs of the world, frequently respond to this by saying, good, it's a good thing that FTX was, was exposed. It's a good thing that Bankman-Fried will now be facing a time in prison. It's a good thing that some of the hype will be diminished and that people will be a little bit more skeptical and a little bit more discerning. So I think it's actually a really positive sign. You can kind of tell who's a serious crypto industry person versus who uh, is in it for the get rich quick element based off of how they respond to these scammers. And I think that's really heartening. That's something I always see the serious people in the industry looking at this as a necessary purge. My question was going to be, what what does this tell us for the future of crypto? It seemed from its inception like somewhat of the modern day gold rush. You saw a lot of people getting involved, particularly minorities. I've seen several articles about how black people invested in, in large number in this, this new emerging economy. Um, what does a scandal like this do to the apparatus that is crypto? That's a great question. I mean, I think it's really important to sort of uh, get people back to reality. Uh, but I've also always been a huge advocate for for blockchain technology specifically, it's not necessarily, it's, it's sometimes hard for me to see the use case of crypto specifically in terms of uh, how long transactions take to process. It's hard from where I'm sitting right now to see crypto being the thing that replaces credit cards, for example, uh, in any sort of short timeline. But the thing that uh, undergirds that, the blockchain technology uh, that Bitcoin is reliant on, the protocol is, I think, really interesting because it, it's this opportunity to cut out middlemen and to ensure a high degree of, of trust and reliability. So one of the areas in which I really see the best blockchain use case is real estate. You know, when you're buying a house and you have 30 days where you basically go back and forth with a whole bunch of lawyers and realtors and um, a, a bunch of documents, and you're basically trying to verify that the line of credit uh, they, that a bank is extending to an individual is that that's a smart move, that the individual is representing themselves accurately, that the actual asset uh, is, is something that the bank ought to uh, be, be funding. There's, there's so many components of this, but basically you have an entire industry of, of very well-paid middlemen. And blockchain, I think, has some value from that perspective of basically making it so that these types of transactions can be higher trust and more reliable. So I think the technology still has some value. There are still use cases for it. But we should always be concerned about get-rich-quickism. That's not typically a good thing. And so frequently, like what you're talking about, 
it's more vulnerable groups, more vulnerable people who are newer to that uh, to the game, uh, who are going to possibly be most hurt by it. And so this is a really useful reminder that we all have to be extremely skeptical with how we approach pretty much anything in the realm of finance, because there will be bad actors like Sam Bankman Freed uh, that will attempt to, to hurt our bottom lines. So we need to be very careful. Well, the crypto world was left rocked by the FTX debacle. Crisis after crisis drove major crypto com- companies into bankruptcy, including BlockFi and Lenders Digital Voyeur and Celsius Network, among others. The unstable and often money-losing bet that crypto turned out to be sent several one-time believers to the exit. And the crypto meltdown is being heard in Washington, too. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Roger Marshall introduced the Digital Asset and Money Laundering Act of 2022 just last week, which would prevent cryptocurrency users from hiding behind blockchains, as these blockchains would have to be registered financial institutions. So would getting Congress involved prevent meltdowns of the scale we've seen, Liz, or how do you see this playing out? I'm always super concerned whenever Elizabeth Warren introduces regulation about the degree to which this opens up the door for regulatory capture and cronyism and rent seeking. I think, you know, Sam Bankman Freed was one of the biggest people advocating to be regulated. And he was specifically advocating for CFTC regulation instead of SEC regulation. Like he was very specifically trying to get regulated by agencies that he thought Uh, he could have more influence over. And I I think that uh, there's a lesson there. And I think libertarians have been saying this for a very long time, but we should be very, very careful about how regulations could possibly be used by one company to attempt to uh, thwart their competitors. I think we saw a lot of that with Sam Bankman-Fried, and we saw a little bit of that with the FTX Binance relationship. So that's definitely a big takeaway that should make us very cautious and concerned about Warren's legislation. That said, I also just generally think that Warren doesn't really understand the things she's regulating. And I think that is especially true for the the cryptocurrency industry and and for some of the things they're saying about blockchain. And I'm not totally sure they understand what they're talking about. Liz, but how could you not see this as like an indictment of like cryptocurrency more broadly, like the very fact that there's no ability to oversight that the whole thing is i mean it just seems like the whole it's a it was a house of cards that was perfectly if you were sam bankman freed you could not have designed a better system for getting away with something like this than to use something like blockchain than than cryptocurrency that is not tethered to anything you know i i I hear what you're saying about you know you know regulations and whatnot is sort of there's you know there's it's very american to want to be able to trade with people and do your own business and have the government butt out i am so with you on that like that's sort of one of the fundamental the fundament one of the most fundamental american values but at the same time like how is is this not an indictment of crypto more widely? Well, I think that argument holds a lot of water if Sam Bankman Freed gets away with this and spends no time in prison. Mm. But I think the fact that he's facing possibly 115 years locked away uh, is pretty good evidence that these types of financial crimes still matter, still matter when applied to the cryptocurrency realm and uh, are t- taken very, very seriously, that we have existing regulations and laws on the books that do prevent against this, or, or perhaps not prevent against it, but ensure that those who do commit frauds at this level will be held accountable. And so I think the, the degree to which prosecutors are being very aggressive with this, as they should be, is actually good evidence that um, you know this type of thing can be stamped out and will continue to be stamped out. 
but I think I think something that you're tapping into that I, I very much understand and appreciate is that it is hard for consumers, for people who are just getting into this, to know uh, what type of exchange they ought to be using uh, and to know where to trust. And so I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about how cryptocurrencies work and how you as a, a consumer who maybe wants to get into it but doesn't know that much how you ought to conduct uh, business. I think it's also just like a, a very hard financial time. We're dealing with some really bad conditions in terms of like the stock market, in terms of high inflation, uh, in terms of labor market funkiness. And so I think it's it's a little bit of a dark time where a lot of people were sort of struggling to figure out how they should navigate it. Uh, I have a lot of empathy for that. And I think it's important for this type of thing to be highly publicized so that people can be, you know, buyer beware, basically. There's a there's a certain caveat and tour takeaway that I think will be really valuable. Uh, people should be really suspicious of hype. Uh, and we saw a lot of hype for quite a few years with cryptocurrency. Liz, I know you're sure you're going to disagree, but um, I actually am in favor of Elizabeth Warren on this one and more regulation because this is people's everyday people's money. And seeing them lose it in something like this is quite frankly saddening. Great to have oh. you and more rising after this. Tweets by Twitter support announcing a new policy banning linking to competing websites have been deleted. According to journalist Jed Legume, the policy itself was reportedly deleted from Twitter's website. This policy was in violation of European Union rules. According to the European Commission, gatekeeper platforms may no longer prevent consumers from linking up to businesses outside their platforms. The penalty can be a fine of up to 20% of the company's annual revenue. The Washington Post's Taylor Lorenz was briefly suspended yesterday after she apparently violated the now defunct policy, and her account has since been reinstated. Associate editor at Reason Magazine, Liz Wolf, joins us now to weigh in. So great to have you, Liz. Thanks for having me. So what was your reaction to seeing Taylor Lorenz uh, banned from Twitter and, um, you know, this whole brouhaha that unfolded over the weekend? My reaction is that I have a new board, and so I'm not particularly interested in what Taylor Lorenz <laughs> is or is not doing on Twitter uh, these days. It all seems a little trivial to me. Um, no, I mean, there's there's long been all kinds of petty behavior from the, the likes of Lorenz and, and the likes of Elon Musk on Twitter. Uh, I do think it's kind of interesting seeing so many people who very clearly have an ax to grind with Musk being concerned about this, when in reality, if the EU could possibly be fining him, that seems to be good for the muskaters, right? Like, go ahead and hit him where it hurts. But I do think it's worth uh, noting that it, you know Twitter is a private company and can do whatever it wants. Musk needs to forge a path to profitability to ensure that this isn't just a money-losing vanity proposition for himself. Uh, and I don't think that this will get him there. But if he wants to do this, he is fully within his rights to do so. Liz, what conditionally is being lost a lot in the conversation about the uh, initial ban of talking about or including links to other social media sites within your Twitter post is that the argument wasn't ever that he just wanted that to stop. It was that it would no longer be free use. So uh, to your point, there is something that he's trying to do. There's profiteering here, and that's all Elon Musk is day and night. And recognizing that Twitter has lost a lot of advertisers, they're kind of in the hole, that the valuation is lower than a lot lower than what he actually paid for it. What do you think? is going to be the next step? Because it seems like at this point, he's been making willy-nilly policy decisions um, based off of his own Twitter fights. Where do you think this is going? 
Well, I'm kind of a free speech absolutist. So when I first heard the news that Musk was buying Twitter, I wondered whether this could be taking it in the right direction. I have mixed feelings about Twitter uh, under Dorsey's leadership, but I think Dorsey did a good job uh, in that he admitted that Twitter censors made the wrong decision with like censoring the New York Post Hunter Biden laptop story. Um, and I think some of the Twitter files, the revelations that have come forward from Matt Taibbi and from Barry Weiss in the last few weeks uh, have been really valuable in terms of uh, opening the kimono, uh, to use kind of a weird uh, expression, and helping us understand some of the behind the scenes decisions related to content moderation. I, I do think the, the main takeaway, though, uh, which might surprise you from the libertarian perspective, though, is that I'm a little pissed that Elon Musk is spending a lot of time on all of this. Um, I think he's really trying to be the, the main character, so to speak, on Twitter every single day. And look, this is a man who's interested in terraforming planets. He's interested in going to Mars. He's one of the people popularizing and, and making it so that electric vehicles are much more affordable uh, and much more hotly desired in the United States. He has the boring companies uh, attempt to tunnel under cities to try to relieve their congestion problems. I mean, he's, he's a really impressive innovator in a, a whole bunch of other fields. Uh, and I have a lot of respect for what he's done. Uh, I think he could use his very, very big brain to focus on those types of things. But the fact that he, for whatever reason, is tweeting about uh, wokeness and suspending Taylor Lorenz and all these things on Twitter, I just sort of wonder, will this be the thing that advances humanity? Or is this kind of something that's keeping us mired in extremely petty and trivial fights? It's definitely it the thing so that's advancing his investors to move away from their investments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a really great point, Amisha. Where are you on that, Liz? I mean, you know, for, for, from a certain point of view, um, we discussed this earlier, the, um, there is a tension between being a free speech absolutist and running a business that can turn a profit, right? Because, um, you know, whatever the First Amendment may say about swastikas, it's very clear, protected speech, right? Uh, advertisers do not want their products to appear next to swastikas on a on a platform. You know, isn't there, it, there, there is, is, do you agree that there is a fundamental tension there between running a business in which people speak and, you know, profitable business and the sort of absolutism of free speech that's guaranteed by the First Amendment? If so, you know, where, you know, which, which direction should must be erring on when making these tough calls? Well, I think the advertisers of Yeezys, for example, are totally fine with their product appearing next to swastikas, unfortunately. Uh, no, I, I do think that it's important whenever we talk about these things to separate the legally binding First Amendment as it pertains to um, government treatment of speech versus fostering a culture of speech, which I think is what people, users of Twitter uh, are talking about um, when they talk about social media content moderation, especially as it pertains to how these companies should make decisions uh, during elections, uh, we're not actually technically talking about the First Amendment, uh, but we are talking about this more informal culture of speech, this idea that, that the um, people who run these platforms really do control a significant portion of, of what people are exposed to and what types of things they can express, and um, that these, these information flows really do matter and that we ought to be, um, there's a lot of tension between whether we ought to be maximalists in that or whether they ought to exercise uh, their powers uh, and, and take a really uh, heavy, have a really heavy hand with restricting that information. I do think that Musk is, he seemed to come into this with free speech maximalist principles, but it's hard to tell whether he is actually committed to those because of the degree to which he's almost acting like a strong man 
um, where things that curry favor with him, he's very comfortable uh, with having them run rampant on Twitter, but there's there's this this ego tied up in it, which leaves my hackles raised from a free speech, a principled free speecher perspective. So I'm very concerned about that. I think we even saw a little bit of that kerfuffle with Barry Weiss and Musk over the weekend, um, if I recall correctly. So I think that is something that very much could leave investors uh, highly concerned. He's a little bit unreliable and unpredictable. Unpredictable is the <laughs> perfect term here because we've seen it time and time again with Elon Musk. I do agree with you, Liz. At, at the end of the day, um, when it came to his private sector work, the work that he has done in building up Tesla, the work that he has done in space, which some people wish he would go there and stay at this point, has been quite <laughs> remarkable. And a lot of that is being diminished slash eradicated because of the way that he is responding creating action and, quite frankly, having these very erratic and offsides tweets on a regular basis. Absolutely. I mean, it's really sad thinking about what Twitter could be versus what Musk uh, attempts to be warping it into. And there's also fundamentally this question of uh, how much staying power does it have if, if there is this level of unpredictability. It's hard for me to see when Musk first announced that he was taking it over, I had lofty free speecher hopes and I was very curious as to whether Musk, uh, a historically quite successful businessman, would be able to forge a path to profitability. Uh, I have become increasingly worried about either both of those prospects. And I think uh, for, for the Musk haters, of which there are many, that must be very exciting to watch. But it's a little frustrating to me that we're all working ourselves into a tizzy over this when inflation is still hurting people's bottom line, when we still have war in Ukraine, when we still are, are gearing up for an election. It, it really does seem like we're sometimes so interested in focusing on the least significant things. And I think Musk himself is very guilty of that. He could be beaming internet into Ukraine to help people have access to information. He could be beaming internet into Russia to ensure that citizens there are not just uh, only exposed to Putin's propaganda. Musk doesn't seem to be focused on those activities and is instead focused on pissing off Taylor Lorenz. Yeah, I mean, it, it is really heartbreaking because I, I really do feel for the conservative point of view and also people on the left. I mean, under the old regime, um, the censorship was so weighted in one direction that I never really knew if I was getting an accurate sense of the right point of view because I knew how extreme the censorship had been. But now it seems almost like we're headed in the other direction. It's not that not just the ban, he only banned 10 journalist accounts, but so many leftists are fleeing the site. And in a way, the pro, you know, yes, it's bad when the company censors, but the thing that's lost is that vigorous debate that you want so you can check yourself and know if your argument is good or if it's just that you've never heard the other side, right? And in, and in a way, um, isn't Musk in just disgusting leftists into leaving creating um, a, a, a homogenous Twitter, you know, a, a kind of the, a, an echo chamber for himself, uh, you know, not by, you know, by banning, but through his um, his erratic leadership. Well, Batya, both of us are huge believers in this. Iron sharpens iron. There is nothing more valuable to me when working through policy arguments than hearing the perspective of, of somebody like you or even like leftists who do legitimately believe in cancel culture type stuff. Because you and I are similar on some things. We have a lot of areas of overlap and agreement. But like, it's extremely important uh, when you're attempting to craft policy arguments or understand the ins and outs of a specific political issue to be engaging with the best possible uh, 
opposite argument. And for whatever reason, people seem to be intimidated by that. They seem to be frustrated by that. They seem to shy away from that. And what a horribly unhealthy thing for our discourse. And what a horribly unhealthy thing that so many journalists seem to be wired that way as well. There's this incuriousness uh, that I frankly find pretty sickening because it's our job as journalists, it's our job as people in the media to be curious about what's going on and why, to not necessarily come into a specific situation with a gazillion preconceived notions, um, to not try to be rigidly dogmatic about things per se, but to be clear about how we're approaching things, what our biases are, and to ask a, you know healthy questions of the other side and to interrogate the areas where we might be incorrect because we're all incorrect at some point or another. Um, the fact that so few people are interested in this, the fact that Musk isn't fostering an environment that will do that, makes me very, very, very concerned. Uh, and we have to somehow fix this. I am very appreciative to shows like Rising and to The Hill for being an environment where we can do that. We need more forums like that, not fewer. Thanks for joining us, Liz, and more Rising after this. Republicans and Democrats in Congress are on the brink of approving a whopping $858 billion in funding for the military for the current fiscal year. That is more than $45 billion over President Biden's original asking price. The big recipients of this massive defense budget are weapons makers, including the government and the largest contractors, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. And at the center of the ever-increasing budget are the threats from China and Russia and, of course, the war in Ukraine. According to a New York Times analysis, the Pentagon budget will have increased 4.3 per year over the last two years, if Congress approves it. So, Amisha, where are you on military spending in general and specifically on this package? So, Bacha, this may come as a surprise to you, and it comes as a surprise to people who are on the left as well. I have never supported the exorbitant budgets that the military-industrial complex has. Uh, it's quite frankly frustrating to see it swell year after year after year. Um, and there, there are just so many other things that we could put a lot of this money towards. I'm sorry. To see this go up and to even be sizably increased from what Biden's original asking price was is, is quite frankly frustrating, and I don't think that it's necessary. We know that Lockheed Martin Raytheon. There are hundreds of defense contracting, defense contractors who are making money hand over fist. And at this point, it's just really disgusting to see acknowledging the issues that everyday Americans are having, trying to make ends meet, and all of the other programs and things that would help America to be more competitive. At the end of the day, there's only so much money to go around, but somehow the military industrial complex continues to increase, irrespective to us not actively being in war anywhere. I cannot agree with you more. The idea that China and Russia pose a military threat to the U.S. just seems to me to be totally delusional. China is our greatest threat, I believe, but from an economic point of view, from a domestic policy point of view, from a point of view of which country has the largest growing middle class, it's China, it's not us, right? All of these things that make a nation great, right? Whose children have much more upward mobility. Um, but, but the idea that China is going to wage a war on us is just totally delusional. Their entire uh, economic policy is, 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 is bound up in, um, you know, actually stealing American jobs. <laughs> um, and the idea that Russia is somehow capable, I mean, Russia is struggling to even hold on to Crimea. 
which is something that, by the way, it's been struggling to do since it, since it, since it took Crimea. The idea that Russia has the capacity and the wherewithal to start waging war on the United States, even any other NATO countries, it is just absolutely absurd. And I cannot agree with you more. This is just a justification to, 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 to take taxpayer dollars and funnel them into the pockets of these billionaires and these corporations that produce weapons, you know, that produce death. For what? Why? How is this in the U.S. national interest? How are we spending our money on this instead of on the actual struggles that you and I talk about all the time that are facing average working Americans today? And I, I can't help but feel that this need to virtue signal over the war in Ukraine has just given both parties an excuse to try to one up each other and get back to that thing of forever wars that President Trump, I mean, he won by by fighting against that and saying, why, why are we not putting our country first? No, I, I agree. I think that what we're seeing here and in, in the protection of democracies across uh, across the globe is extremely important. It's part of, you know, the ethos of who America is. But I do think there's something to be said about um, Russia versus Ukraine and the and the idea that this could go on for a really long time. I think that walking into this, there was an understanding that it wasn't going to resolve itself quickly, but also an understanding that Russia's economy is, what, a dime in comparison to what America's happens to be, and even smaller when we think about what China's happens to be. Our reliance on them for anything is extremely low. I, I believe that China has a much greater vigilance and is a much greater threat to America than, than Russia will ever be. But in addition to that, militarily, neither of them are really an argument for us. When it comes to China, I personally am more frustrated with the idea that they could do something to our grid system. They could, you know, um, hack into our into our capacity banking-wise and other things, because we know that they have several intellectual prop. They haven't found an intellectual property right they're not willing to expose. Um, there are other things that we should be looking towards, I think, other than and things that are not going to be protected by an increase in military industrial spending. We have a lot of issues in terms of our competitiveness. China has surpassed us in many ways. And instead of investing in and advancing ourselves to the extent that our education system is, is subpar in many areas across the country, um, at the P to 12 level, as well as at the higher ed level, that we don't have, we don't make things here anymore, at least to the effects that we did decades or generations ago. The fact that we are so reliant on Chinese products, there is a lot that we could be doing and investing right here and seeing this explosion of military industrial spending is quite frankly just maddening at this point. I could not agree with you more. You know, there was a really funny interview that Candace Owens did with President Trump where she was trying to get him to to denounce the vaccine that he's so proud of. And, you know, you know, he, he kept refusing to do so. And finally, she said, you know, look at our school kids. They're wearing masks. It's terrible. School kids aren't wearing masks in China. And President Trump said, we could do we if our school children were learning like the school children in China, we'd be doing a lot better. Right. And, you know, there's there's something so fundamentally true about that. TikTok is banned in China because it is so dangerous for children. They get completely addicted to it. It is, you know, the, and, and, and this is why the number one thing that children, if you ask them in America, what do you want to be when you grow up? The number one answer now is a social media influencer. In China, the number one answer is an engineer. You know, we've just fallen 
fallen off. And I, I could not agree with you more. This kind of spending, this focus, the idea of like taking all of this money and funneling it into the top to create weapons that's just a self-perpetuating, you know, funding of elites at the expense of everybody else. It really gets to the heart of the problem. China is not a threat militarily. It is a threat to us culturally and a threat to us economically because the elites don't care about the working class and upward mobility for the most vulnerable Americans. If I could have had a cheering section for you, Basha, <laughs> on that point, I would have definitely ushered it in. Just because I do think that there is so much truth and, and truth to power spoken in what you just said, because at the end of the day, we've seen this time and time again, our competitiveness in math, in science, um, our competitiveness in product creation, in, in ensuring that we are able to survive as an economic stronghold and stay at number one. If we talk about American exceptionalism, yes, we can all pat ourselves on the back for certain things and, and the, you know, the history of how, we, of how we got here and how we became this nation that the globe looks at in terms of one of the strongest democracies or the strongest democracy, even though we've teetered a little bit as of late. Um, but none of that amounts to the growth, the expansion, the crazy amount of competitiveness that we have seen from China. And I think that we are steadily hitting a point where we're not going to be able to catch up. And that is my major fear, a lot more than anything military, militarily, to your point. They're not thinking about that either. It is, they can, they can, if they keep going at the pace that they are, crush us without ever having a troop on the ground. Yeah, 100%. And I, I will just say, I, I found it so upsetting how the right treated President Biden after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, because he really, you know, he wasn't the first one to promise that we were going to get out. President Biden promised we were going to get out and we didn't. He couldn't do it. President Trump promised we were going to get out and he couldn't do it. He was rolled over by the State Department and President Biden showed up and he said, I'm going to do it. And he did it. And instead of cheering him on for getting us out of this forever war, the right just attacked him mercilessly, as did the Democrats, by the way. There was very little difference. Um, and now, of course, we're mired in another another war. Um, you know, we don't have troops on the ground, but, you know, 20 billion dollars and rising and climbing. There's ever more demand that we keep funding this war in Ukraine. Nobody is talking about diplomacy. Nobody is explaining why whether Crimea belongs to Russia or Ukraine is a question that is of such great national interest and American U.S. national interest. And nobody's asked, asked the American people what they think about this. And even, you know, Kevin McCarthy, who promised no more funding for Ukraine before the midterms, right? got those votes, and now, of course, doesn't have the power to actually enact anything like this because of the disarray in his own caucus. So, you know, I just think, you know, to me, this question of where do we stand on foreign policy? Are we going to keep putting other countries ahead of ourselves? Or are we going to focus on our own citizens, the most vulnerable citizens, the most disinvested in communities, working class communities, black communities? Or are we going to keep taking that money and funneling it into other people's problems and other people's conflicts that could have been resolved with diplomacy very early on? Couldn't agree more. Military contractors' support for war efforts in Ukraine were on full display at the Ukrainian embassy's reception held last week, honoring the 31st anniversary of the country's armed services. In fact, America's biggest weapons maker sponsored the event with logos of Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, Pratt, and Whitney, plus Lockheed Martin, were plastered throughout the event space. Bacha, what do you think about this? What, what can we make of, and this goes back to a previous segment, but what can we make of the players here, uh, the funding and 
the plastering of the names of some of the nation's largest beneficiaries of the industrial, the military industrial complex. You know, the thing that is admirable about um, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is that he will do anything that he thinks is in the interest of Ukraine, including extremely problematic things like inviting people to a party funded by Raytheon, right? I mean, it is, there's something so unsavory about this, having the ambassadorship of a foreign country co-hosting a party with these weapons manufacturers, right? It just really, really smacks of some a conspiracy theory that I don't think is true, right? Which is that the only reason we're supporting Ukraine is to, 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 to make money for Raytheon, right? I don't believe in that conspiracy theory. I don't think that's why President Biden has been, you know, t- in my opinion, overly supportive of this war effort. I think that it comes from, you know, a, a more, you know, honest place of wanting to help an ally, even if I disagree with the way that they've done it. But but when you have something like this, an invitation that has the official logo of Ukraine, the country, right next to the fact that this party is being funded by these massive weapons corporations that are making bank off of helping Ukraine, funding this war, giving them the weapons they need, it really, really undermines the idea that, you know, that this is anything other than that, right? And I think that, you know, even if there, it gives the appearance of um, such a dark, dark uh, connection here that I really think this was a huge mistake. I, I think that you're right here. And I was going to say that as well. It's the imagery. I don't think that there was any type of ideology or co-opting of, um, of the efforts of the Biden administration or those who have been trying to be supportive uh, of Ukraine throughout this process. Again, protecting democracies. That's kind of the brand that the United States has taken for quite some time now. But I would be hard pressed to say that this does not look really bad. Um, and and to, to that point, it is a grave misunderstanding or just not playing well to the field to not understand how hosting these people, how having their names on the banner is not problematic. To your point, I don't believe in the conspiracy theories either, but darn, this does not help to alleviate them by any means. Right, exactly. And and of course, the, the point is, you know, um, if you're making rockets so you can ship those over to Ukraine, you're not taking that investment, that funding, that capacity and using it to create microchips, right? Using it to create the kinds of things that would support American industry long term down the road. And that is the thing that really bothers me about this. It always comes down to who are you putting first? Are you putting our future first, the future of our children first, the future of our nation first? Or are you thinking constantly about the bottom line and this country? and that country. And again, I, you know, I wish the people of Ukraine well. I think they fought bravely. I'm glad to see them winning. I'm glad to see them holding their own. But this conflict could have been ended in March with diplomacy. And that was just never on the table. And I really want to understand better why that was as somebody who's fighting against the idea that it was a conspiracy to put billions of dollars into the pockets of Raytheon, etc. You know, I really do think that that should, you know, Anybody who's putting a call for that on the table is doing the right thing, in my opinion. Absolutely. And tomorrow on Rising, I'll be right back here at the desk with Brianna Joy Gray while Robbie's out sick. We'll get into all the biggest news of the day. Vacha, always great to see you. Thank you so much for hosting with me today. It was such a pleasure. Can't wait to watch you tomorrow. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, We are now available anywhere you listen to your podcast.